In the late 1990s, Dan Keeling was a young talent scout at Parlophone, the record label that signed bands like The Beatles and Radiohead. So he turned to Keith Wozencroft, the guy at Parlophone who discovered Radiohead. I just remember saying to him, how the hell are going to find anything as good as this? He said, well, you know, just keep going out and, you know, you'll find something. The first time Dan saw Coldplay perform, that something was not them. Coldplay had recorded a few songs for an EP. A mutual friend urged Dan to give the band another shot. What Dan heard was a band that could stretch creatively. He signed them to Parlophone. We all know what happened next. The members of Coldplay became rock stars complete with actress wives and uniquely named children. And then, 15 years later, at the height of his influence in music, Dan decided to leave it all, to turn his curation skills to something else entirely. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by We Transfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. I met Dan Keeling in person at Noble Rot, the wine bar and restaurant that he owns with his business partner, Mark Andrew. The food is extraordinary, and the wine list is amazing, award-winning. But I wanted to talk to Dan because of what he's done to the culture of wine. It started with the magazine Dan and Mark launched in 2013, called Noble Rot. Noble Rot was a passion project meant to fill a hole in the way people, and particularly critics, talked about wine. Being able to use it as a a club to hit people who don't know about it over the head, you know, that snobbery, I think that was what we purposely set out not to do. And the way I think to do it was to try and bring in other areas, talk about it as part of uh, a culture rather than something that's in a bubble. Eight years on, Dan has launched a magazine, a book, two wine bars, a wine shop, and curates wines for restaurants across London. Even members of Coldplay occasionally pop in for a glass to act as an audience for the movement that Dan is building, one that has the potential to change the wine industry for good. I love the magazine. I honestly think it's, if not the best magazine that exists at the moment. And even for those people that don't like wine, I think it's funny, it's entertaining, it can act as a travel magazine, it's got so many layers to it. But you and your business partner, Mark Andrew, started the magazine in 2013. That's right, yeah. And the intention was to try to demystify wine. I think you're doing a really good job. What's your formula for taking people's understanding of wine as another avenue of inebriation into an eye-rolling, table-thumping, multi-dimensional, holy mother of Christ, I love this experience? I think these are your words. I think they are. And looking back, I was um, for the first time in a long time, I, I looked back at the first couple of issues and 
I think it was Mark who came up with the line de-twatify wine. <laughs> so maybe that applies more than demystify wine because there's something to be said for the mystery of wine and the romance of wine. And I think that's part of why we love it. But definitely the pretentiousness uh, surrounding it, the the stuffiness, the, the being able to use it as a, a club to hit people who don't know about it over the head, you know, that, that snobbery. Like you can get in all sorts of walks of life. I think that was what we purposely set out not to do and the way i think to do it was to try and bring in other areas the creative arts music food to try and talk about it as part of uh, a culture rather than something that's in a bubble that should only be rated out of 100 points you know you go to some of these tastings and uh, the way that wine critics review wines is they might review in flights of 20 at 10 o'clock in the morning and they might do 80 wines over the course of one day in kind of the laboratory conditions which is which is perfectly fine of itself but that's not really how we like to consume wine we obviously drink it at home and with our friends but uh, it was to try and talk about it in its proper context and its proper context is to be shared and also to be uh, drunk alongside great food what i love about the magazine is in my memory, the people that were funny uh, with wine and funny with alcohol were also alcoholics. So if, if I think about the people that were really humorous, you know, they always seem to also have a bit of an issue. Um, you seem to do it in an entertaining, artful, you know, intelligent manner without it seeming like it's obsessive or excessive. Um, that kind of um, humor thing, just while we're on that subject, I think that was just coming from growing up in England and growing up in Monty Python or, or Viz magazine or, you know, being a fan of the Beastie Boys and their kind of outlandish funny videos. Because not all bands are funny, but that was that was definitely a, an influence of what we were trying to do. We also wanted to bring humour in, which it seemed that apart from a few writers that, that really influenced us, like Kermit Lynch in America and California. Kermit Lynch was brilliant at writing about wine with a sense of humour. And I think even people like Hugh Johnston's a really great wine writer because he, he talks about it in a really human way. It's not just all technical sides to wine. It's, it's what does it mean? You know, why should people care about it? What he loves about it. Also, there was a, there was a kind of book or a magazine called The Complete Imbibers, which we only found out about much more recently, which was a guy called Cyril Ray. And that was an old English publication. And again, it was, trying to write about wine with a, with a sense of humour and humility as well. I mean, what is particularly appealing to me and I think to a lot of people is this underlying focus on art. I mean, a lot of the people you interview are artists or musicians or in, in the arts. Yeah. And it's sort of fun, irreverent. I think one of my favourites is that picture of an English bulldog chugging a, a bottle of champagne on, on the cover. What made you or what brought you to that place where you thought we need to mash this all up and bring illustration and art into into this conversation to make it interesting? Or was it just natural? But when we started the magazine, it wasn't as thought out as that. The first thought was there's room for a magazine talking about wine and food the way that we like to talk about it without the pomp that you would get or you know, the sterile kind of technicalities that you might get in other magazines. So that was the first thing. And then after that, it was how do we do it? And the first bit is, is copy. How do you how do you come up with interesting stories? So there was Mark and I. We got 
Stephen Harris, who's our executive chef, who's the chef at the Sportsman down in Whitstable, and he gave us his his recipe for gypsy pudding, which is a Kentish, you might know it coming from Kent, but it's a Kentish classic for school dinners. Well, we used to have gypsy tart. Yeah, that's it. Gen- gypsy tart. Sorry, I've got it completely wrong. The Kentish will be offended. <laughs> um, we got Mike D from the Beastie Boys was our first ever Q&A. I remember it. I remember it. Yeah. And then there was Mick Dean, who was a very old family friend of mine. So they were our writers with a, with a couple of other friends put in. And uh, Mark laid it out on this very ancient Amstrad or whatever computer it was. Um, it was definitely, not that long ago. <laughs> it was definitely Fred Flintstone <laughs> era. And we were going to send it off to the printers. And it just had a few little kind of images taken off the internet, which were really crap. And just before we were about to send it he said do you think maybe we should do some you know get some illustrators and i mean i didn't know any illustrators and that was the start of the design conversation which was a a steep learning curve and one cobbled together through people we we knew and the magazine took a big upturn in design with issue six and a guy called jeremy leslie who does a fantastic website and magazine shop called mag culture and we met Jeremy on a, uh, I think it was a Guardian masterclass, how to start your own indie magazine or something. And he, he's, he's lovely, Jeremy. He's very generous and very generous of his time. And after issue five, he said, yeah, yeah I like your magazine. Do you, want to, do you want some help with the design? And we were like, yeah, of course we want some help with the design. So now we're on issue 27. It's a lot more seamless. And, you know, it's easy to think, oh, this is something that's put together so effortlessly. And only now over the last few issues do I feel that, you know, there's not the odd filling article in there. It's kind of got to the point where we can actually leave out stuff that we don't think is quite right. Or it's got to be the right tone for Noble Rot as well. It can be critical, but this is a magazine celebrating the wine life, if you like. Do you want to combine art? with food and wine are you just looking for people that love food and wine i mean for example um grayson and philippa perry fantastic interview thoroughly entertaining well grayson and philippa they love food and wine i'm sure i don't think they're quite as obsessive about food and wine or as infatuated as we are but they're just fantastic guests because they're full of life they've got you know really interesting uh, story about them and them together it was Probably the most out there interview that we've done. Marina O'Loughlin, who's part of Noble Rock, she, she organised it. She knew Philippa and turned up to do the interview as one of the, the first meals out of lockdown. And it was at the River Cafe. We were both wondering if Grayson would come in his full regalia, which he did. He had an amazing kind of rubber gnomes outfit on or something. I'm not quite sure how you would describe it. <laughs> And uh, I think Marina had taken a sleeping pill, she said, thinking it was a vitamin pill in the morning. So it was slightly more relaxed than normal. (laughs) And as you know, with interviews, you press record on the tape recorder and normally it's a two-way conversation. But on on this particular interview, once it pressed record, it just was like a free-for-all. And I was just wondering to myself how Marina would make anything out of this, the the, the copy, the the transcript. Because you're there as well. I'm there, a photographer's there. And it was wonderful. And I think Marina came up with a really brilliant, insightful, entertaining interview. Brilliant. But they're exactly the kind of guests that we love to have in the magazine. I mean, one of my favourites was Brian Eno, who's such a polymath and interested in so many different things. It wasn't any surprise 
doing the Brian Eno interview that halfway through he said he was really into smells and collected them and then went off into the back of the studio and came through with lots of little vials of smells and promptly told us that he designed a perfume that he had been in talks with with a perfume maker to manufacture but they didn't go through with it because you have to promote a perfume for so long so he'd have to be promoting it for two years and wouldn't be able to do other projects and also it was so potent that if you wear it in the street people were so attracted to you because of a certain pheromone that had been put in it and he said that he wouldn't say who it was but there was a, a female artist that he'd given it to who swears that she met her husband through this perfume a female millionaire artist who used this perfume to y- yeah I mean, you could probably narrow that one down. Um, yeah, Brian was amazing. David Shrigley was amazing back in the day. We've got Irvin Welsh in the new issue. I think the challenge sometimes is finding interesting guests who are really into food and wine. And that's the kind of perfect crossover, I guess. Someone who's a bit nerdy about it too. I just want to touch on your previous life before wine because there is a logic. You came with a music background you were in A&R and you discovered Coldplay and Lily Allen and I seem to remember last week you telling me athlete. Yeah, that's right, athlete, yeah. It was, yeah. Do you miss the music industry? Uh, no, I mean, because the music industry now is not the music industry of 2000 when I first started working with Coldplay. It, it seems to me completely different in so many ways. If the music industry was that era... Or if there was another band like, say, Oasis came out now, not that it could ever come out now in the same way as it did. But if there was something like that, I think I would miss that that excitement of working with something like that. But, you know, I'm 46 now. I'm a lot older. I'm, I'm not into the music that's in the charts. I was barely into it anyway when I was working for record labels. But you've got to make a living. Coldplay, when they started, they were very influenced by Radiohead or by Jeff Buckley. And a few years previously, when I started as Talent Scout, OK Computer had came out. So I really had a target of what I wanted to try and find. And I ended up working for Parlophone. And Keith Wozencroft, who was the MD, was Radiohead's A&R man. I just remember saying to him, how the hell are going to find anything as good as this? And he just kind of said, well, you know, just keep going out and, you know, you'll find something. So that was the target. But what's the target now? I don't know what the target is. If Ed Sheeran had walked into my office, I would never have signed him in a million years. So I'm <laughs> obviously the wrong man for the job. Yes, well, we could have gone to Ed Sheeran for another hour. <laughs> I mean, you clearly have a good eye for curation. Um, it's not about just finding you know, bands or things that people like, but it's also about packaging them up. And that's all we're talking about, right? Whether it's about curating music or creating artists and presenting them to an audience is interested that's what you did in the previous life or if it's about you know putting together people the right people into a room to make it into an attractive restaurant or putting together a magazine that's where i think the world is moving towards because there's just so much stuff i think identifying interesting people uh, ideas trying to spot the connections between them is is a skill that's key you know any of these projects that are successful whether it's a successful album or artist or restaurant or magazine it's the people the team that has been put around it that makes it a success without other members in a band for example 
or without the kind of mix of people in that band, without the mix of a chef and the right room and the right idea at the right time. There's so many of these little decisions that go on to make something right or not. And for example, our restaurant in Soho, that's been a success and it's very popular, but it might not have been, but it's on the right street. It has the right history or an interesting history that relates to our other restaurant in terms of the feel of it. And then all these other things flow into it. The restaurant you've opened in in Soho is the site of the former Gay Hussar restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah. When, when people are going to go and eat in your restaurant now in Soho, do you think that most people there know that history or does it have any relevance at all? Or is it something that you use as a talking point to get people in? No, no. And it, and it doesn't need to be in a way like we, we hope that if you just come you just wander in off the street you're going to have a nice experience but the point is i think that it has got history it's got a history really worth celebrating because so much of soho has been ripped apart with pretty bad concept restaurants and i don't know ice cream bubble bath stalls or whatever went in there so that could have easily happened to the gay hussar but having that story that hook is so important now as we know the world is just full of kind of noise and the history of the Gay Hussar is fascinating. You know, it was um, it was owned by Yugoslavians before it became the Gay Hussar, and it was called Yosef after a famous dictator. And then it became the Gay Hussar in the 1950s, run by Hungarians. And it had this very left-wing clientele, Michael Foot, Clement Attlee uh, used to go in there. Alistair Campbell was rumoured to have bugged the dining room downstairs because there were so many conversations going on in there and he could find out who was plotting and scheming so that that kind of history deserves you know celebrating as well and it all adds to the the flavor of the restaurant we're so much more into working with buildings like that than we would be going into a new build you know a lot of restaurateurs you can get offered deals to go into a new hotel or a, a new development that kind of thing just fills me with horror because it's it just seems a little bit soulless. My perception of what you guys are doing is making the inaccessible accessible. You know, I was recently in Bordeaux and uh, I was asking you where, you know, where to go and you were like, I've got no idea. Many of the places in Bordeaux you can't access. They're just off limits to you know, the man on the street like me. Mm. So what do you do? You just simply look at it from the outside and then go to a couple of small vineyards. It's deliberately inaccessible. And everything that should be about wine, I think, should be about accessibility and enjoyment and trying to you know, raise awareness and knowledge of how these things are produced. And if you can do that, it's fascinating. I, can't, I don't know why anyone wouldn't be interested in it. Yeah, It's just uh, been deliberately, I think, made exclusive for such a long time. Yeah, I definitely think there's something in that and raising awareness about how wines are made. What's the difference between one made in a big industrial state with lots of industrial processes or, or one made by a family using quite traditional methods there's there's quite a big difference so I, I think that does need explaining but not in a kind of preachy way just in a there's a there's a reason why some things might cost more than others and smoke and mirrors a lot of uh, the wine industry you know it's like anything it's glitzy packaging Champagne is a really good example because, you know, you have all the Grand Marks, of which there's some amazing wines being made by them. 
but underneath it all, there, there was years of crap farming. So it was, you know, one of the most heavily saturated with herbicides and chemicals vineyard areas in the world to make huge productions that they needed to make. They, you have to cut a lot of corners. Whereas now there's grower producers in Champagne that are, you know, small families normally, and they won't make 30 million. They're more likely making 30,000 bottles and they'll harvest at the right time when the grapes are properly ripe rather than just whenever it's convenient. And they won't spray them with, with loads of pretty harmful chemicals. So that kind of disparity between producers in Champagne is a good example and something that we, we push and try and talk about in the restaurants. And that's a perfect segue to natural wine because the natural wine movement feels like a direct response to that in trying to, again, simplify and, and, and deliver an easier, more, more natural product. To get everyone on the same page, could you give us your definition of what natural wine is? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that's been talked about over and over, and nobody really seems to get to a kind of satisfactory answer. The way I would define a natural wine would be that it is organic or biodynamic, some of the, our favourite wines are what would be called natural wines. So they don't have hardly any sulphur or minimal sulphur. They're farmed organically. I've got to say, I'm not a big fan of natural wines. I'm also not a massive fan of orange wines, but that might just be that I've had you know bad luck, wrong place, wrong time. And Yeah, like any type of wine, 99% of natural wine is probably going to taste disgusting, but 99% of conventional wine tastes boring and disgusting so rather than talk about generalizations i think it's always better to talk about specific producers Gianfranco soldera in brunello de montecino makes the most otherworldly amazing wines he doesn't you know he, he would be classified probably as a, as a natural producer what's his method then well his methods are more extreme than 99.9 percent of other winemakers so when we visited, it actually blew my mind. And when I got home to England, I sold a lot of my cellar and bought lots of his wine. He actually passed away not long ago as well. <laughs> but um, just to give you some idea, he has his big wooden vats. So he'll get his organically uh, farmed grapes. They might be biodynamic, I can't remember. No herbicide, no pesticide. No herbicide, no nothing. They're all pristine. He'll put them in this uh, top of this uh, vat and he won't crush the grapes at any point. He'll only use the free-run juice. So it's just by the grapes pushing down on other grapes. It's just the juice that gathers in the bottom. So that is one decision that obviously it narrows down how much production he's going to make. Number two, before he gets to that, actually, which is really unusual, most winemakers like the smallest grapes possible. So, you know, they've got a lot of material and flavor to them. They're not so watery. He doesn't necessarily want the smallest ones. He wants ones that are in the middle and he'll get rid of the smallest ones and the bigger ones and just he just wants one size. So he's after harmony and balance in his wines. So this is a guy that could have been making 60,000 bottles and ends up making 10,000 bottles, but all of his contemporaries were just saying, what, what is this guy doing? He's an idiot. But you taste his wines they're just out of this world. So there's an example of some of a producer that someone could classify as natural, but he's just a brilliant winemaker. Okay. The natural definition of a, a really natural wine in one sense might be a, a wine that's had low intervention, un, as unprocessed as possible. So nothing added, nothing taken away. And maybe that might be one of the best 
definitions I've heard of natural wine by a natural producer. But on the flip side, natural wine can become this dogma where it's, you know, people with tattoos and big beards telling you that this wine that's really oxidized and tastes like rat's piss is how it's supposed to be made. And that's not true either. So <laughs> because it's got a beer top, it's got a beer top cap. It's identity, isn't it? And I guess one of the greatest things about natural wine, in a way, is it opened up wine to a younger audience who couldn't afford their dad's Bordeaux and didn't want to drink their dad's Bordeaux either, and, or Robert Parker points and all of that. And it was a, a reaction to it. It was kind of the DIY punk rock of of the wine world. And there's some really great parts of it there's just some really shit parts too but it's also about not drinking what your dad drinks because not all natural wine is cheap i mean there are some you know equally expensive natural wines that i think is just a bit of a uh, fuck you to the wine snobs to say i'm not going to drink what you drink i like orange wine well uh, yeah there's there was one wine we visited a guy a young japanese guy he was a man united fan actually when we visited him in 2014 he was talking about david moyes just getting the job <laughs> anyway he, he has this tiny domain in the jura it's called domain de miroir and even back in 2014 we said at the end of this visit which was great and his wines were, were amazing uh could we buy a couple of bottles he said no it's all gone so up until now so seven years we probably managed to get two bottles off of this importer and the reason why is because they've become super, super collectible. And one of his wines went at auction. It's a natural Chardonnay. It went for 3,000 euros for one bottle. Uh, this was during lockdown. So certain producers have become as expensive in natural wine as conventional wine. When you were just describing those two um, winemakers, I could see you equally as excited about the people and the process as the wine itself. So if you drank an amazing bottle but it came from a complete dickhead, would it be as good to you as a bottle that comes from somebody who's an amazing producer and fantastic personality? It depends how much of a dickhead they are. I mean, I've, I can't name names, but I've met producers who have been so rude and just not very nice people that I've instantly just said, we cannot sell any of these wines in any of the Noble Rock restaurants, can't write about it, and that was it. It's a personal thing. Most of the time you visit winemakers and you come away thinking, God, I love the wines even more. Uh, when they're great people and you can see that they love what they do, how much it means to them, that ultimately they're dreaming of making the best thing they possibly can rather than just like, it's a job, I need to pay my mortgage, of which there are lots of those too. But those dreamers, it's, it's like musicians. Some of them you meet and you just... You just think, yeah, like Brian Eno. You don't meet Brian Eno and think, what a wanker. You think, oh, my God, it's Brian Eno, and you've surpassed my expectations of what I thought Brian Eno would be like. So you are now a pretty influential person in the world of wine. Am I? I don't know. <laughs> I think you are. Let's just play play along, yeah. play along with it, Dan. <laughs> okay. I think you're pretty influential. <laughs> what would you like people to do with the information you've given them? What do you want them to come away with once they've experienced the restaurant, your wines, magazine? Yeah, I, I think um, it's definitely a consideration every time you put out a magazine. You definitely want people to come away with some takeouts from every article. You know, in the next issue, I've written about Burgundy's most exciting new domains. So equipping them to know who they are so they can check them out, why they should care about these domains, what makes them different, and insights as well. 
is is something that is not just regurgitating technical information and facts. It's contextualizing things and telling people why what makes something so compelling. And I think that's what I want Noble Rock to do. Our staff do that as well in the restaurants. They, they taste all the wines and you know if people can come away having learned that they love a Rioja by Lopez de Heredia for example and then from there they can then go on and find you know the next door estate to that it's a bit like music where you start off liking David Bowie and then you could then work out that David Bowie knew Iggy Pop and they both knew craft work and then you kind of go from there so I think if we can give people the confidence that you don't need to know everything about this limitless subject. You know, sometimes you feel that you should be identifying all of these other flavours that are somehow in the wine, black currants or tar. And sometimes it's, wine's just wine. There's nothing much to say to it apart from it's an alcoholic drink, gets you drunk. But sometimes there's a lot to say about it. So I think it's having the confidence to not give a shit sometimes and the confidence to then be mega interested by it as well. This past year has been pretty tough for a lot of people. I imagine um, quite a few people turned you know, to a glass or two during that period. Is there something that you can recommend for people to get into a bottle that you would say, oh, this is a great starting point? Oh, a good starting point. I would look for specific domains. Our book, Wine from Another Galaxy, in the second half of it, we go and visit our favourite producers around Europe. So I would pick somebody going back to Lopez de Heredia for example Lopez de Heredia are in Harrow in Rioja their cellar is the most what's well, the most amount of spiders and cobwebs I've ever seen in one place it's like a labyrinth of moles and <laughs> I remember that in the magazine yeah and they, they make fantastic long-aged Riocas the white is unlike any white wine that you'll ever have it's waxy textured it's it's very complex complex in terms of it's quite hard to describe the reds are really good. So I would start off by looking for a producer that you could kind of get a handle on. So basically buy your book. Buy the book, <laughs> find the producer. <laughs> what was the most memorable bottle that you drank? And, you know, lockdown was great for drinking, as we all know. So there was so many different times. I mean, there was a couple of bottles at the end of lockdown when I got together with my business partner, Mark, and we drank a Coke Roti, which was smoky, smell of roasted meats. It was kind of ethereal, like lifted, it just in a bit gamey as well. That was fantastic. And then we opened a Burgundy, which could be the best bottle of wine that I've ever had in my life, which is a Chambon Massini by a producer called Freddie Mounier. To sound like a pretentious wanker at the end, it operated on a different plane to every other wine that we've had that year. <laughs> <laughs> and it was floral, it was really, really light in colour. It was, it was one of those bottles that you just think, wow, it doesn't get any better than that. And that concludes our episode for today. Cheers to Dan Keeling for your passion and hospitality. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering this week is done by Maddie Zampanti. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens and thanks to our studio in Amsterdam, Centre Sound. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate us and leave us a review. If there's someone you think that we should interview, please tweet me at DJ Bradfield. 
Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time.